Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk, and today we're talking all about Georgia. In 2020, Georgia found itself at the center of the American political universe. Georgians handed control of the Senate to Democrats in a pair of dramatic runoffs and voted for a Democrat for president for the first time in 28 years. The state also became a target of former President Trump's attempts to overturn the election, and then, in 2022, the stage for a high-stakes face-off between competing factions of the GOP. Georgia will once again help determine which party controls the Senate this fall. But just a handful of years ago, Georgia was hardly considered a battleground state. In 2016, Trump won the state without visiting a single time as the Republican nominee. So how did Georgia find itself in such a prominent place in American politics? It's a question that Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Greg Bluestein sets out to answer in his book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. And we're going to discuss it through the lens of three different election cycles, 2018, 2020, and now 2022. In the answer are all kinds of things we like to focus on here at 538, changing coalitions and demographics, how campaigns and politicians influence voters, and where our politics are headed next. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Before we get into the details of your book, I just want to ask, you know, what is the overarching theory for why Georgia flipped in 2020, as far as you're concerned? Yeah, there's a few. That's a great question. One is that, of course, the Atlanta, metro Atlanta suburbs, just like we've seen in so many other parts of the country, the suburbs have swung decisively from Republican strongholds to, to Democratic bastions. Um, we've also seen Democrats lean into a more authentic message, uh, one that eluded the party in past years. You know, Democrats in Georgia used to run as pro-gun NRA Democrats who were quiet about issues like same-sex marriage or abortion rights. And now they've leaned into those messages forcefully, along with others like criminal justice reform and other key messages. And that has helped energize um, voters who often skipped uh, midterm elections and even some presidential elections. They've helped polarize and galvanize and energize a base of voters who felt disenchanted, disenfranchised. And of course, part of the reason um, 2018 and 2020 were so competitive is something Democrats cannot rely on in 2022, which is the polarizing effect of Donald Trump either in the White House or on the ballot. They might be able to look forward to that for, for Democrats in 2024, but not in 2022. And we, we've st we're still seeing Donald Trump's effect on the GOP and his divisiveness in, in the GOP in, in Georgia. Um, but certainly he helped motivate a lot of voters who used to consider themselves Republicans or, or who might now consider themselves independent, who backed the Republican Party in years past, swung to the Democrats in 2018, 2020, and now they're kind of up for grabs. I want to read you an excerpt from the New York Times. It's an analysis by The Upshot in the immediate aftermath of Biden's victory in Georgia in 2020. And I think it caused some debate, I think mostly within the Democratic Party, over how accurate it was at painting a picture of what had happened in Georgia. So this is it. Joe Biden put Georgia in the Democratic column for the first time since 1992 by making huge gains amongst affluent, college-educated, and older voters in the suburbs around Atlanta. The black share of the electorate fell to its lowest level since 2006, based on an upshot analysis of newly published turnout data from the Georgia Secretary of State. In an election marked by a big rise in turnout, black turnout increased too, but less than that of some other groups. The findings suggest that Mr. Biden's win in Georgia may not yet herald a new progressive majority in what was a reliably red state, as Democrats still depend on the support of traditionally conservative voters to win statewide. Does that jive with your understanding of the 2020 election? In part, because look, Democrats did benefit from the fact that tens of thousands of reliably Republican voters stayed home in the runoffs in particular. And others who voted in the past for the GOP uh, didn't. Uh, but also Democrats stayed on message. They did energize key parts of their base. They reached new levels in terms of getting white voter participation. There's always been this sort of vaunted threshold of 30-30. It's black voters reaching a 30% share of the electorate and white voters signaling 30% of support for Democratic candidates. And they kind of got near there in 2020. Democrats feel like if they ever reach the sta that standard, it is a solidly blue state at that point. 
because voting is still so polarized in Georgia along racial lines. Uh, and the real concern for Democrats here in Georgia in 2022 is that the the presence of, of two African-American candidates on the Senate ballot, Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, there's a fear that especially older black voters might veer more towards Herschel Walker, um, given concerns about inflation, economy, disenchantment with Joe Biden, whatever it might be. And we've seen some early, early polling that suggests in particular older black voters are, are, you know, getting 17, 18, 19 percent of support for Herschel Walker. It doesn't seem like a huge number, but in Georgia, where black voters routinely vote 90 percent plus for Democratic candidates, even a small fluctuation in voting patterns uh, could have a significant impact on the November election. I think we saw in 2020 that the Democratic Party had already begun to lose some support amongst working class voters of color. And it was to a significantly greater degree amongst Hispanic voters, but I think we saw some movement amongst black men as well. Did we see that in 2020 in Georgia, or is this new in the 2022 cycle as pertains to the Herschel Walker polling that you're mentioning? Yeah, I think the bigger concern, it it is an emerging trend. Um, The bigger concern for Democrats is not necessarily more black voters switching parties and voting for the GOP, although that is a concern. It's that African-American voters would stay home. It's that liberal voters in general would stay home. Uh, You know, it it costs so much more money, so much more resources to try to energize and and motivate persuadable voters, the few swing voters, the few middle-of-the-road voters around these days, than it is to try to, you know, get, get a base voter, a likely Democratic or a likely Republican voter to the ballot. And campaigns have made the strategic decision to mostly focus on getting the sort of gettable voters rather than persuade the, uh, the, the persuadables. And in this case, um, Democrats are worried that people upset with gridlock, upset with Joe Biden's track record, Democrats who voted for him in force who haven't seen the sort of progress they'd like to see, you know, landmark legislation that they hope to see, that they were promised on the campaign trail, worried that they'll stay home. And that's going to be a significant factor in, in the 2022 election. Yeah, I mean, talking about sort of turnout versus persuasion, I know this is a constant debate that gets talked about in political analysis. But in Georgia, according to 538's analysis, the electorate is particularly inelastic, which means that it is not as likely as perhaps other states, other voters to change with the political winds of the nation. It's actually the second least elastic state in the country. But let's get back to 2022 in a second. I I still want to focus in on what happened in 2020. So you mentioned that 30-30 number, Black voters making up 30% of the electorate. That happened in 2008 when Barack Obama ran for president the first time. In 2020, Biden only achieved uh, 27%. Black voters made up 27% of the electorate in Georgia, but still won. However, it seems like in the runoffs just, you know, a couple months later, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff were more effective at sort of keeping turnout up and keeping Black turnout up while, you know, white voters sort of fell off more, particularly white voters who would have been inclined to, you know, vote for Trump in the 2020 election or vote for Kelly Leffler or David Perdue in the runoff. Should we look at that and say, you know, Biden and then Warnock and Ossoff ran different types of campaigns and sort of showed different blueprints for winning in Georgia? Two stories come to mind. One is John Ossoff opens that runoff phase knowing that he'll have more money than is inconceivable you know, just an obscene amount of money for his campaign, and that he could do something unique with it. And he knew he was going to run behind Raphael Warnock. Raphael Warnock was polling ahead uh, by a point or two. Um, he had advantages that John Ossoff didn't have. And he said, let's 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 do something different with, with all the money we're getting. One of the things he did was pretty much every ad, I think it was every single runoff ad that came from his campaign, were geared toward African-American voters. He knew that there could be a drop-off, and he didn't want any sort of drop-off to be fatal to his campaign and closely monitored white support in his polls and knew that if white support started dropping, um, he'd have to pivot back his ad strategy. Um, There were people, including minority leader at the time, Chuck Schumer, who might have thought he was crazy and who was like, hey, do you know, are you sure this is the right way to go? But he stuck with it and it helped him keep his African-American participation numbers at a high level. He also pioneered this sort of pilot program that worked in, in his case where, uh, again, they had so much money, they could they could afford to do unique things. And they reached out to, they create, basically created a program where they had thousands of grassroots, just regular folks who, um, who they would pay 
to tap into their cell phones, tap into their contacts, and just text message all their contacts saying, hey, uh, I haven't heard from you in a while, but this is so-and-so, and I'm voting for John Ossoff, and here's why. And it showed not a huge uptick in participation, but a few percentage points in the participation from those, those voters that were contacted that way by someone they knew, they trusted, um, someone they were friends with, someone they went to high school with, you know, someone they worked with who said, here's why I'm voting for John Ossoff. And that seemed to have, you know, a positive impact on his campaign. And on the counter side, the flip side of the coin, Republicans, it got to the point with Kelly Leffler, where, of course, we had Kelly Leffler and David Perdue appeasing Trump at every single level. You know, thinking that calling for Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State's resignation was enough. But then that wasn't enough. And it got to the point where both of them had to go and call for Mike Pence to block Georgia's Electoral College votes on January 6th, right? That was the sort of ultimate step that they ended up taking right before the runoff. It still didn't matter. It still didn't work to appease all of Trump supporters. And I talked to one of Kelly Leffler's top staffers who said essentially they had internal databases, like every campaign does, of all their likely voters and all their potential voters and all the voters that weren't going to back them. And they had one full of tens of thousands of names of reliable Republican voters who had voted in past GOP runoffs and primaries and were seen as locks, but they called it GOP not voting. And these were basically the diehard Trump supporters who bought into the false conspiracy theories, the lies about election fraud in Georgia, who, who, who no matter what the campaign felt, no matter what they did to try to reach out to that block of voters, it was a waste of time. They were spinning their wheels because they were so ingrained in this whole rigged election uh, falsehood. You mentioned that Warnock ran ahead of Ossoff. What do you attribute that to? A few things. In, um, in a major way, look, Ossoff was known. You know, he had been running since 2017. Back then, he was unknown, right? I mean, the first time I ever heard John Ossoff's mm-hmm. name was when he called me in 2017. I remember I was in a parking lot of a hospital visiting a friend, and he goes, hey, my name is John Ossoff. I've got $250,000 in cash commitments, endorsements from Hank Johnson and John Lewis, and I'm running for Congress. I said, okay. <laughs> and at that point, it was looked at as a very long shot because this was a seat that the incumbent, Tom Price, had won by uh, more than 20 points in an election just a few months earlier, and he was appointed as Trump's HHS secretary. And, and it was the suburbs. It was a Republican you know, leaning area in the suburbs. Um, and he made it close run of it. But in that campaign, which he lost by four points in that special election, pummeled with negative ads. So it was basically years of negative ads that had built up on John Ossoff. Whereas Raphael Warnock was newer to the scene. He was known, you know, in business circles and in, of course, religious circles um, and in civil rights circles. Uh, he was the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. He was in the news, but he didn't have necessarily a soaring profile. And he benefited during the first stage of this special election from basically avoiding head-on attacks. I mean, there was months that went by where Republicans were focusing more on internal feuds between Kelly Leffler and her Republican challenger, Doug Collins, because they knew that there'd be a runoff, no matter what. There was a special election with with a number of candidates on the ballot. Um, I think it was 20. There was an obscene amount of candidates on the ballot. Um, Raphael Warnock was the main Democrat, and there was no chance, polling showed no chance of him winning the race outright. And so it was a battle between Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins, and Raphael Warnock was kind of the sideshow, um, to Republicans at least, until he um, got into the runoff. And so he was spared of a lot of GOP attacks, so he was fresher on the scene. And he, he also had great ad smiths. I mean, his ad team kind of crafted this image of him as this puffy, vest-wearing, friendly guy who had this cute beagle named Alvin who walked on suburban sidewalks, white picket fences behind him, who talked about, you know, things that folks agreed with. More coronavirus relief, a more balanced approach to budgeting. Um, You know, he wasn't talking in these ads about divisive issues. You just saw this, like, friendly guy who seemed like a buddy to everyone, and it's still shaping the 2022 campaign. I mean, it just, just, I have a story that just came out a couple days ago about potential split-ticket voters. And one of the Republican activists I interviewed was like, hey, I'm voting for Herschel Walker, the GOP nominee, but I've got a lot of friends who are voting for Raphael Warnock, and it's part because he's coming across as so friendly in the ads. And it's become such an issue for Republicans that in 2020, he was branded as this radical liberal. And it just, you know, it fell flat. And Republicans are now saying, hey, we might go back to those attacks. But right now, the narrative is he's a good guy 
but he supports bad policies. So I think that those were several of the key factors. And of course, also Raphael Warnock is African-American. He's the first black U.S. senator in Georgia history. And that did motivate a a number of black voters who voted for him and might have skipped John Ossoff um, or who who might have held their, you know, begrudgingly voted for John Ossoff. But they were there to vote. They were on the ballot to vote for, for, for Raphael Warnock. I want to get sort of abstract for a second here and ask you this question that comes up often in like political theory 101 classes, say in college or something like that. And it's this framework for describing historical events through three different windows, right? The first one is through individuals. And so individuals in Georgia's case might be Stacey Abrams. And I think a lot of Democrats view Biden's success and Warnock and Ossoff's success there as the responsibility of Stacey Abrams, ultimately. The second window is internal factors, say population, demographic changes, things like that in Georgia. And the third window is external forces, which would be like the political environment in the nation, Trump's presidency, the economy, things like that. You know, I think that different activists, journalists, even politicians have focused on those windows differently in order to make a point about Georgia. In reporting out this book, do you think one of those windows best describes what happened in Georgia? It's a very good question because I think they're all interconnected. I think the individuals matter, though, in in a major way, not just Stacey Abrams, but the other Democrats who kind of led the charge here. And Stacey Abrams certainly was the leading factor in this, paving the way. Um, even today, even her, even her Democratic critics within the, in, in Georgia um, always give her credit for proving, you know, not just in the 2018 election, but also continuing to needle and to, and to, and to, you know, and to call and pressure national, using her platform to pressure national Democrats to pay more attention to Georgia, saying that, in her words, Georgia is a cheap date. You know, it's a lot easier to, it's a lot cheaper and easier to compete in Georgia than it is in Florida. And in some of the more expensive states, especially states with with multiple very expensive media markets, where in Georgia, Atlanta is expensive, eh, but you know you, could, you there's a lot of, of of much more moderately priced media markets in smaller mid and mid sized cities in Georgia. But also, look, I mean, you know, Democrats couldn't have pulled off what they did without dem- Democrats moving in their direction. And that's why Democrats remain confident, even if 2022 doesn't go their way, that 2024 will still be competitive. And 2026, ugh, it's hard to think about that, <laughs> but will also be competitive because they know they're in an uphill battle this year with the, with the climate. And then, and then you add in the Trump factor. You add in the fact that, that Republicans um, and former Republicans and independent voters were sour on Trump, and, and many of those were disillusioned by his his first term in office. Um, I think he needed all three of those pieces together that you so insightfully uh, outlined. But I do think that the people in this case, because you have these figures um, who don't come along. I mean, you know, if you have you don't have a Stacey Abrams type figure in North Carolina, for instance. You know, there are just, you don't have those types of Democratic figures that have just vaulted onto the national platform and have made themselves a force. And in Stacey Abrams' case, folks were ready to write her off after her her, her defeat to Brian Kemp in 2018. And yet, as Kemp himself uh, joked to me on a helicopter ride in the middle of South Georgia, you know, he goes, why do all my opponents get more famous than I do, right? Stacey Abrams was able to elevate her platform after a defeat. And who knows what will happen in 2022 in the aftermath if she does, if she doesn't uh, pull off a victory against Brian Kemp and if she's able to maintain that. But certainly after 2018, you know, being quartered by Chuck Schumer to, to give the State of the Union rebuttal, begged basically to run for U.S. Senate, and then given the stature, uh, you know, recru- uh, vetted for vice president, and then given the stature um, and using that platform to fight to, to flip Georgia. Um, you need that. And of course, you need this army of activists and volunteers, donors, um, that ha- that is still helping to make Georgia a competitive state to this day. To the extent that it was Stacey Abrams' roadmap that contributed to flipping Georgia, what was that roadmap? Because I think there's even debate about that, that some people say, oh, she's a true and true progressive, and she's proving the point that progressives can win and compete even in the Deep South. And for others, they'll say, like, I don't know where she got that label from. She's a pretty pragmatic person who runs on popular issues and sort of leaves the unpopular stuff to the side. And that, like, more than anything, she's registering people to vote. You know, she would probably say both. I know it's a cop-out, 
but she's very progressive on, on, on certain issues, right? When it comes to criminal justice overhauls, uh, when it comes to, you know, abortion rights and, um, you know, issues, that, guns, issues, again, that not so long ago, not, not, this is, we're not talking about decades ago during the 1960s and 70s. I mean, candidates for governor right before her in 2014 and candidates for U.S. Senate, candidates for statewide office routinely labeled themselves NRA Democrats. They didn't want to pick a fight with the NRA or with guns. They didn't want to lose campaigns based on Second Amendment, whereas we saw this wholesale shift with her campaign in 2018 where Democrats were suddenly embracing issues that they stayed away from. But at the same time, she has uh, carved out a pragmatic streak as a state legislature, as the as the state's top Democratic House member in the in the Georgia legislature, um, over year over years, she was known as a pragmatist in in, in some cases. Um, she worked with Republicans, for instance, on this bill that ended up uh, rolling back hopes. Uh, we have a scholarship called the Hope Scholarship that gives that I that I benefited from that gives free college tuition for students who maintain a B average, and it was proving to be too popular for its own good, and it was running out of money. To, to continue giving all the benefits that, that folks like me got, you know, years ago. And Republicans had the votes to push through um, more stringent changes, and she still didn't love the compromise that she came up with, that they came up with, but rolled back some of the more stringent restrictions on, on the Hope Scholarship. Things like that, you know, that became big issues in the 2018 primary uh, with her and another state lawmaker named Stacey Evans. You know, showed that she... Um, she has a pragmatic streak. And frankly, if she wins, one that she'll have to employ with a legislature that's going to continue to be Republican. I mean, she's making all sorts of big promises about about initiatives, not just expanding Medicaid, but giving teachers $11,000 pay raises, uh, giving certain law enforcement officials raises, giving billion-dollar worth of tax refunds to Georgians. All these things she'd have to work with the state legislature to accomplish. And, you know, if she wins, there won't be a, they won't be in a, a mood to bend over backwards to help her. To be clear, in 538's current forecast, uh, we show Brian Kemp with an 86% chance of winning re-election. And I think that matches what the conventional wisdom looks like on the ground as well. I mean, do you have any further insight into the dynamics of the gubernatorial race and why it seems at this point like it's Kemp's to lose? Look, and this is this is something I could never have imagined, but David Perdue's challenge to Brian Kemp has only strengthened his hand. And back in December, even well, even before that, when David Perdue was rumbling about running, I looked at this race as a toss-up. Donald Trump's endorsement in Georgia used to be, for Republicans at least, used to be basically a golden ticket. And you had this very well-known rock star among Republicans. I mean, I don't want to understate it, but I'd go to events and Republican events, and David Perdue would get the biggest selfie line. He'd get the loudest ovations. He was treated as this like superstar figure in a way that even baffled him because when he ran back in 2014, he was the outsider who no one seemed to even know or, rec- or, or, or acknowledge. And then suddenly, you know, a couple of years in office and he was this superstar. Meanwhile, Brian Kemp was getting booed at Republican events, not just like, you know, diehard Trump events, but you know, little county meetings in, in rural Georgia where he was once feeded, he was being booed. So David Perdue got into the race promising to unite the Republican Party ahead of November. He did, but he united it against him and for Brian Kemp. And so now Brian Kemp enters, he, he had to move to the right on issues. He might have moved to the right on some of these issues anyway, but he basically channeled all sorts of Republican energy during the legislative session towards a number of of, of sweeping changes um, that, you know, one of these alone could have dominated your typical Georgia legislative session, but he pulled off victory after victory after victory, even in the face of skepticism from, from fellow Republicans who I knew didn't personally support some of these issues. The Speaker of the House of, of Georgia, for instance, um, who wasn't a huge fan of Brian Kemp a couple years ago, rallied behind him, got in line, and ended up supporting legislation in hopes of bolstering Brian Kemp's case in the Republican primary. Uh, and we're talking about 
a, a massive expansion of gun rights that, in Georgia, a, a rollback of, of permit carries um, called permitless carry. We're talking um, legislation that basically paves the way for a ban of transgender girls playing in high school sports. Um, we're talking a complete overhaul of education policy modeled after what happened in Virginia with CRT and all those Republican buzzwords. And we're talking, you know, a huge outlay in public funds to give teachers pay raises and public employees pay raises and all sorts of feel-good efforts um, based on Georgia's record surplus. So some key changes that helped him win a 52-point primary victory over David Perdue puts him basically with a mandate of GOP in the Republican priority. Um, The most recent poll I've seen came out um, just the other day and showed him with 95% of Republican support, something that we would never have imagined just a few months ago with him being at the top of Donald Trump's uh, target list, his enemy list, right? Now he's at 95% of Republican support. So there's very little question about whether or not he has a mandate within the GOP. And, you know, a lot of independents who, um, you know, that, that poll I mentioned showed that among independents, he's outdoing Stacey Abrams by about 14 points. Um, so a lot of middle-of-the-road voters mm-hmm. who either want to reward him for standing up to Trump because he rejected Trump's attempts to overturn Georgia's election in 2020, or just simply happy with the way things are going in Georgia. Um, because, our, you know, there's a lot, of course there's inflation, and of course there's economic uncertainty and scarcity of, of products and, and high energy prices. But at the same time, unemployment rates here are low, um, and folks are— um, he is making the sort of centerpiece of his economic platform the fact that he decided to reopen Georgia's economy, even against Donald Trump's wishes and again and with lots of democratic criticism way back in March, April of, of 2020. So there's that. And then and of course, we talked earlier about how John Ossoff trailed Warnock in part because he was pummeled with he had years more of of sort of a negative baggage on him from GOP attacks. Well, Stacey Abrams has been the top target of state Republicans since 2016, 2017. You know, if you were running for dog catcher in in rural Georgia, you were running against Stacey Abrams, right? So she's got that weighing her down as well. Uh, so that that's one reason or several reasons why Brian Kemp's feeling pretty comfortable right now. And just to back up the 538's uh, forecast, Stacey Abrams' camp herself says, hey, we're, we're in an uphill battle. We are, we are the underdogs. Do not underestimate Brian Kemp because there's this sort of complacency that they fear among, especially among donor, the donor base outside of Georgia who see that she's, you know, setting all these records and, and all over the media. Um, and, and frankly, they're not seeing that here, right? Democrats here are very squeamish about this race. Um, they know it's an uphill battle and you can see it with the campaign strategy as well. You know, every every week it seems like Stacey Abrams is outlining a new proposal, um, getting lots of headlines for it. Brian Kemp, you know, he's responding to those proposals, but he's in no rush to outline his twenty his second term platform. Hasn't said a word, um, a, you know, a specific word. He's talked about in general. He'd, he'd you know he'd keep the, stay the course, but he hasn't outlined a specific broad proposal for a second term yet. And he's in no rush to do so because. Uh, polls show him in, in, a, in a commanding position right now. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. 
Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Contrary to the governor's race, the Senate race seems genuinely competitive. Our forecast currently gives uh, Warnock a 45% chance of winning re-election. I think that will actually change once we update with the latest poll out of Georgia, which was an AARP poll that was released this morning that showed Warnock with actually the slightest lead over Herschel Walker, while at the same time showing Biden with only a 34% approval rating in Georgia. We talked a little bit about how Warnock has a sort of nice guy image in Georgia, which works to his advantage. So my question here is more, with such an important Senate race on the line for Republicans, why did they nominate Herschel Walker, who, you know, new scandals have come out since he was nominated, but even at the time of his nomination, they knew that, one, he obviously wasn't an experienced candidate, but perhaps like, okay, granted, that might not matter all that much in today's political environment, but he also has accusations of domestic abuse, shady business dealings. Okay, now he also has uh, reports that he lied to his campaign about having secret children. And the race wasn't even competitive. Like, why, how did the GOP in Georgia let this happen? That's a great question because even before he got in the race, and we're talking about months before he got in the race, we knew about some of these issues and we're reporting on them. Uh, erratic behavior, um, violence against women, women uh, including his his ex-wife, exaggerations of his business record, lies about his academic experience. All these things were, were not just suddenly found, right? We've been reporting on them since last August, last, last, last summer, um, before he even got in the race. The fact that he lived in Texas, you know, for decades and only moved here last year, right? Um, but I think it goes to a couple things. First is Look, there's a rare alliance between the mainstream Republican power base and Donald Trump's faction behind uh, Herschel Walker. You know, not only did Trump quickly come out and endorse Herschel Walker before he even got in the race. I mean, I think it was February where he tweeted or he sent an email saying that Herschel Walker would be unstoppable if he ran for U.S. Senate and that he has his full endorsement. So that froze the field because if you're kind of a— if you're a congressman like Buddy Carter, he's a South Georgia, coastal Georgia congressman who was seriously thinking about getting in the race and could raise some money and had a power, had a base of support. But if you're him and you know that Donald Trump is going to go against you, you're, you're steering clear. Same with a lot of other big names. David Perdue, for instance, um, quickly decided he wasn't going to run again. Kelly Leffler. Uh, another vanquished U.S. senator, also decided that she wasn't going to try to go challenge Herschel Walker. Um, but I think even beyond that alliance and even beyond Trump's support, and it's hard to sort of uh, explain this to folks who don't live in Georgia, Herschel Walker's name recognition here, he's not just a, you know, a sports star. He is something above that. And for people like me who, who I was not born when he was playing at University of Georgia, and my parents are not huge football fans. They, I did not grow up, you know, steeped in UGA football lore. But even so, I did grow up hearing Herschel Walker's name. And to me, like, it's still synonymous, you know, as a Georgia boy and as a proud UGA grad is like, Herschel Walker equals legend, right? It's just something above, you know, that name recognition and 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 that um the, his ties to to UGA's greatest moments and just and even if you're not a UGA fan just his ties to Georgia sports in general um gave him this name recognition boost that very good candidates very smart republicans um very able contenders said I can't I can't go against this and so the only names that showed up and there was you know there're no slouches um a guy named Latham Sadler who's actually the the student body president of UGA when I was the editor of the of the student newspaper, uh, and he's a former uh, Navy SEAL. I mean, again, no slouch at all. Has a long history of working in the Trump White House. Um, very good campaigner. Ran a very good campaign. He got in the race. 
Um, one of Trump's top surrogates in the black community, um, Kelvin King, who often went to African-American um, conventions and events, um, talking of uh, boosting the former president. Um, he ran. And the biggest name was um, Gary Black, who was a three-time state officer. Uh, he ran for, he was the, he is the agricultural commissioner of Georgia, has garnered millions of votes. I mean, you know, has success on the statewide ballot. Um, he ran as well. And each of them got in the race knowing that it was a long shot. Each of them got in the race knowing that it would be an uphill battle. And each of them got in the race knowing all those issues that we've talked about. Erratic behavior, violence, lies, falsehoods, conspiracy theories, bumbling statements on the campaign trail. But Herschel Walker got in, entered the campaign. Polls showed him at 70, even 80%. I mean, I think the lowest he was in any poll that I saw was kind of close to like low 60s. Never really in doubt. And ran his campaign as such. You know, despite stories that we wrote and that other outlets wrote about, about these vulnerabilities, um, th at first his opponents were wary of bringing them up and wary of attacking them. Then it was only Gary Black who would, who would do that. And then a few of the others got in. But they didn't have the money to put, it, put that message out there. And it, it, so their, their attacks only went so far. And we, we'd cover them, but um, they weren't plastered all over TV. And Herschel Walker never felt worried enough to even name his opponents. He never, you know, I never heard him say a bad word about Gary Black or any of the others. And of course, that's the biggest signal to me at all. When, it, when, when you see a candidate start to, start to, you know, push back or attack back, you know that they're in trouble. Herschel Walker never felt the pressure at all, never did conventional campaigning, never went to the big forums and the big, you know, uh, fish fries and all the other things that people like me cover and that all the candidates go to, um, never did debates because he didn't have to. And, and he ended up getting a little bit less. The, uh, one of the surprises to me was he had, um, Kemp actually outdid him in the primary, but he still won with, uh, Herschel Walker still garnered about 70% of the votes. So he, he still had an easy victory. But now is the trouble, right? Now, now Raphael Warnock does have the money. Um, he, he has more than $20 million in, his, in, the, in the bank right now. So he does have the money um, to go push messages about, about these issues. And what he's starting to do is he's not even talking about, uh, his campaign's not even pushing out ads about the violence against women and these other issues that could be more damaging to him. They're starting with, hey, he just, you know, not so long ago, he gave this baffling interview where he said a secret magical spray kills COVID, right? So they're they're going with the, the, this narrative, um, which is a real legit thing that Herschel Walker says, lies a lot and says, um, st makes statements that make no sense. And he has done that on the campaign trail. Um, you know, there's, there's an example, you know, about every other week of just sometimes it's softball questions from friendly interviewers in Fox News saying, hey, what would you do about, about guns? And he gives a statement about you know, social media platforms needing needing to better watch men and women, like things like that, um, where even his most ardent supporters are like, what did he just say? It sounds like Herschel Walker might have even won that primary without Trump's support, who knows. But he was actually sort of a it didn't rare- didn't hurt though. Didn't hurt. And he was actually a rare win for Trump in Georgia's primaries, which served as, you know, something of a- I don't know, like focal point for this Republican civil war that we've seen since the 2020 election in terms of there being a divide in the party that Trump has in large part created over like who supports him to the nth degree and who just generally supports him. But, you know, Trump's endorsees in Georgia's primaries ultimately did really poorly. You described why perhaps Kemp did so well. You know, he united Republicans around a conservative agenda that just sort of avoided the, you know, election-stealing question or the election-stealing lie. But why did Trump's other endorses do so poorly as well? Yeah. Um, and, and I think you're, and I agree with what you, the point you made at the beginning, which was Herschel Walker. It didn't hurt him, but Herschel Walker would have won without Trump's endorsement. We could never prove that, but I, I would, I would, I would make that argument. And the other big um, win that the Trump Slate had was uh, Burt Jones, who was a candidate for lieutenant governor, but he also put millions of dollars in his own money into running for lieutenant governor to beat back a uh, a Republican. And by the way, in Georgia, as in many of the other states, it's not like the other Republicans running, including Governor Kemp, were were forcefully you know opponents of 
of Donald Trump. They were all very supportive of his policies, and mm -hmm. many of them were very supportive of him himself. So it wasn't like this never Trump coalition versus Trump. It was just the Trump-endorsed candidates versus other candidates who still like Trump or, or liked his policies. But why did the others lose? You know, this baffled me because I've, of course, covered these down-ticket races and know all these down-ticket um, you know, incumbents and candidates for years. It's really hard to get Georgians interested in the race for insurance commissioner on the November ballot, let alone on a, on a primary ballot, right? And you'd have these candidates who got in at the very last minute. There's this guy named Patrick Witt, and there was this basically a domino effect. This guy, Patrick Witt, who no one in Georgia had ever heard of, who was running for Congress. And Donald Trump decided he liked this other guy who just had just switched parties to run for to run in that seat for Congress. And so he convinced Patrick Witt to run for insurance commissioner instead and said, I'll endorse you. The guy gets in, you know, in February. And basically, his only argument against an incumbent Republican um, named John King, basically exactly who the GOP wants. He's a Mexican-American. He would be the first Mexican-American elected because he's uh, to a statewide constitutional office in Georgia history. Um, you know, gives a little bit of diversity to uh, a slate of Republicans. This is mostly all white men. There's a few outliers, but mostly all white men. And Trump comes in and endorses this guy that no one's ever heard of who doesn't have any money, whose entire message was Trump. Uh, the same thing happened in the attorney general's race. And, and to a degree, the same thing happened in the secretary of state's race where Congressman Jody Heiss got in the race, tried to coast, you know, wasn't doing a lot of media events, wasn't doing a lot of um, high profile rallies. He was going to, you know, party breakfasts on the weekends, but wasn't out there uh, making his argument every single day in a, in, a, in a high profile way. And all of them got not just defeated, but humiliated. I mean, the the challengers to Attorney General Chris Carr and Insurance Commissioner John King lost by, you know, about 50 points, right? And their entire platforms, again, were Trump, 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 Trump. And it showed like, hey, you know, even if even if that would work, they needed they needed millions of dollars behind that message. And the polling that we often saw showed, especially the internal polling, showed that a lot of Republican voters had, no, not only did they have no idea who these challengers were, they had no idea that they were endorsed by Trump. So even if it would have swayed votes, it, they just didn't have the money or message to get out of there. And, and from the get-go, I knew that, hey, these guys are getting in these races in February where the incumbents have been running for years. You know, it's going to take a lot to get Georgians, you know, to pay attention beyond the Senate and governor race that we had been writing about for so often, talking about nonstop, to get them involved and excited about an attorney general race against against your mainstream Republicans who weren't out there opposing Donald Trump. I mean, Chris Carr, the attorney general, and John King, the insurance commissioner, had done nothing to alienate the Trump base. The only, you know, red mark on their on their report card was the fact that they were allies of Governor Kemp. So this was totally part of Donald Trump's revenge tour against Brian Kemp. In your book, you write about the tension within the Georgia GOP dating back to perhaps Brian Kemp appointing Kelly Leffler to the vacant Senate seat instead of Doug Collins, who Trump wanted. Obviously, we all saw how that played out. Doug Collins ran against her. Kelly Leffler ultimately won, but then lost the runoff. And then just the whole thing broke open in the months after the 2020 election with Trump trying to get uh, Brad Raffensperger to find votes to overturn the results of the election in Georgia. It all came to a head uh, earlier this year in the primary. Is it fair to say that to the extent that there was a sort of like civil war uh, within the GOP in Georgia, that it's over, it's settled? The You mentioned 95% of Republicans back Brian, now support Brian Kemp or have a favorable view of Brian Kemp. Like, is, has this been resolved? Look, Will, will Trump still dog Republicans? You know, could he still throw a wrench in the whole GOP election machinery? Yes. You know, there's been, uh, and I've reported on this more recently, um, Kemp's team has reached out to Trump's team and said, hey, you know, everyone knows he, did, he wasn't going to wake up one day and say, I suddenly like Brian Kemp, right? The guy, the former president even said that he'd rather see Stacey Abrams as governor than Brian Kemp. So he didn't just kind of flip a switch and say, I like the guy. But they basically said, can we have just a, a truce, a detente? I don't know what the best word is. Can you just tone down, focus on other you know, perceived enemies and just lay off Brian Kemp a little bit? And so far, he's seemed to do that. So 
you know, and Republicans know they're not in the clear and that more stuff could certainly happen um, that would that would complicate Brian Kemp's reelection and, and threaten his support among Republicans. Um, but at the same time, he's managed to he, he's, he's managed that relationship so far. And silence for him is a good thing. You know, Donald Trump not talking about Georgia and focusing on Wyoming is, is, or wherever is a very good thing um, for him. So I, I would say that has, has, has helped seed the ground right now. Is it over? No. You know, a lot could still happen. <laughs> but, and, and Democrats are going to seize that if they can. Even if they don't do it publicly, they will, they will point to the you know, ongoing GOP civil war. Uh, but right now, things seem kind of quiet. I think Democrats look to Georgia to learn lots of lessons about how to wage and win elections, having recently flipped it. But equally interestingly in all of this, what lessons has the Georgia GOP learned about how to wage and win elections in Georgia after this sort of crazy handful of years for the state? One of the big lessons is, you know, imitation is the best form of flattery. And Republicans have learned from Stacey Abrams' efforts in 2018 that, A, you know, as much as TV ads and all that stuff is still important, it's building apparatus early. And they've done a very formidable job, I guess, is, is to go toe-to-toe with Stacey Abrams' you know, infrastructure. Abrams has 80 uh, full-time staffers right now in her campaign, and she's got you know, offices all over the state and, and, and infrastructure all over the state, I should say. And so does the Democratic Party of Georgia. Kemp can't rely on the Georgia GOP because they're a mess right now. So instead, uh, the governor and his allies are creating their own infrastructure, and they've been creating it for He's been running for re-election since the day he took office. He put a, a, a fundraising appeal out, I don't know, a day or two, two after he took office saying, we've got to stop Stacey Abrams in 2022. And this was way back in 2019. And so they realized that, yes, as, as important as, as, as showering the field with money is, it's also important to have those door knockers to, to, to target voters smartly and to go after what, what, you know, to build what they see as the red wall which is um, Republican voters, just as Stacey Abrams went after disenchanted or disillusioned voters who didn't often vote in midterms but might have voted in the presidential election, Kemp's campaign is trying to do the same thing in trying to give conservatives a reason to go vote by citing some of those legislative issues that I talked about earlier, whether it be you know, education overhauls aimed at directing how teachers talk about race and gender or whether it be gun expansions or, of course, now, you know, in a more quiet way, talking about anti-abortion legislation that he signed in 2019. Democrats have talked about for a while how Stacey Abrams has national ambitions. She's been upfront about that. She's been on this podcast talking about how she would like to be president someday. Research that we've done at 538 shows that ultimately, if you do lose two consecutive elections for Senate, governor, or president, uh, you're quite unlikely to ultimately go on to be successful. We'll see what happens. If Warnock wins this Senate race, I think there is going to be a lot of attention on him and his potential national ambitions. What has he said about those? Or what do you know about those regardless of what he said? <laughs> yeah, it's a very good point because you're right. A lot of attention's on Abrams, but we've got two other elite you know, national Democratic figures in Georgia. We've got John Ossoff, the first Jewish U.S. senator in Georgia history, who's um, what is he, 30, 30, 33 now? And then and then Raphael Warnock, who even before this had the platform of being the senior pastor of Martin Luther King Jr.'s church in Atlanta, right? So I think all three of them will be names that we talk about well into the this decade and the next in, in some form or fashion. I would not count any of them out for being potential running mates and running themselves for the White House in the foreseeable future. I can't imagine how that will all play out. But um, Senator Warnock is not has no lack of ambition, and neither does Senator Ossoff. Um, so I think I think that they will be mainstays on the as long as they stay in office, and and you know no no unforeseen scandal or controversy happens. I think we'll be talking about them for a very long time, and would not be surprised to be hearing that that there are presidential ambitions for either of those senators down the line. And not, not, we're not talking about 2024 or anything like that, but much down, much further down the line. I mean, who knows? <laughs> um, who knows? But 
we have the forecast, so I won't ask you to speculate on where Georgia goes politically from here. But I do want to ask you, you've mentioned a couple of times the amount of money that has flooded into Georgia. And I think this trend sort of started with John Ossoff's special election in Georgia's sixth. That was the most expensive house race in American history. Uh, $55 million was spent in total by candidates, politicians, outside groups. And then, of course, in that pair of runoffs in January of 2021, nearly a billion dollars in your book, you say $930 million was spent in total uh, by both sides in those two races. How does that kind of massive influx of money into Georgia politics change the state, sort of its politics and how the parties behave? You know, you get to a point of diminishing returns pretty quickly too, right? Um, when when there's back to back to back to back Democratic ads on TV, which happens, when campaigns are spending big bucks in remote markets in Alabama and Tennessee and Florida because they have a little tendril in rural Georgia, right? Um, when already we have two hundred twenty-five million dollars either spent or reserved on airtime in Georgia through November. I mean, a quarter of a billion dollars essentially has already been has already been booked or reserved in Georgia, with only one really expensive, you know, one expensive media market, and the rest are relatively, you know, good deals, and it's just going to grow. So I, I always look to what the candidates do that's innovative, that's different, you know, whether it be hiring more staff, whether it be building lasting infrastructure, because the TV stuff is important. And I get it, but it, it you start it starts to have a neutralizing effect where people just kind of tune it out or it doesn't affect them as much, but it's the, it's the unique stuff that, that, that candidates do. Like what I mentioned with John Ossoff earlier with trying something new, because look, you know, we're no longer in the situation where not so long ago, if a candidate, you know, had a bad ad or something in Georgia, that was that they had one good chance to like hit the window. Cause they didn't have, you know, they didn't have tens of millions of dollars. They only had maybe a million. And now, you know, candidates can go put a bad ad out and quietly pull it back because it's not working and then try 20 different ads because they've got that. That's fine. But, you know, it's the quieter programs, initiatives that these candidates are, are doing that, in a, again, in a state that's the most closely divided state, 11,000 votes basically divided Joe Biden and Donald Trump in 2020. So even the smallest fluctuations in voting patterns could have major impacts in November. So I think it's 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 those things I'll be watching out for so much. The innovation, you know, the quieter efforts by these these candidates that could really make a big difference. All right. Well, we'll have to see what happens, but let's leave it there for now. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for having me. Greg Bluestein is the author of the book Flipped How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director, and Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.